Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study of the book of Romans, Pastor Murphy has been showing us that the believer can be absolutely sure of his eternal salvation. Today we'll continue to see that the believer will not suffer divine wrath because of what God has already done for us. Okay, Romans chapter 5. I want to read verse number 9 and verse number 10. And uh, these are going to be our texts tonight. Uh, let's just, because of the short passage, let's read from verse number 1 and then we come to a text in verse number 9 and 10. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation work of patience and patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet for adventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You notice that twice the Apostle Paul uses a phrase. What's that phrase? Did you pick it up? Repeats it in verse 9 and in verse 10. Much more. Notice what he says in verse 9. Much more than being now justified by his blood. And then verse 10. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. So I've entitled this sermon much more. <laughs> so the Apostle Paul is dealing with this great topic and he, he can't stop and one thought leads to another. By the way, all we can do is do what Isaac Watts did when we surveyed the wondrous cross. All we can do is survey. We can't exhaust it. See? And the Apostle Paul clearly uh, himself uh, finds that no matter how much he has said already, there's still more to say on this subject. So he begins with this matter much more. So what Paul is saying, if what I've been saying to you is true, and the arguments I've been using already is true, Paul is now saying, some things follow of necessity. What I've told you, as a result of what I've told you, you should now be able to deduce and deduct from what I've told you certain things that will follow. And this is what Paul is going to extract in this passage. I pointed out to you that he uses the word much more in verse number 9. And he uses the word much more in verse number 10. But this is one of the marks of Paul's writings. This is one of Paul's uh, characteristics, uh, features. You'll find that he keeps using this term much more. Look at verse 15 and see that he has to use it again. 
Same chapter. He said, but now as the offense, so also the free gift. For if through the offense of one man be dead, what? Much more the grace of God. He, that, you see, this is a characteristic phrase of the Apostle Paul. But look at verse number 17. He has to use it again. Listen what he says. For if one man's offense, de- uh, by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace. This is one of the key phrases of the Apostle Paul. And so four times in this one chapter, he talks about much more. And what he's saying is much more than what I've already told you. And he now wants these believers to understand what they can do from what he's saying. The other thing I'd like to say before I begin to deal with this uh, matter. The language that the Apostle Paul used is the language of logic and reason. Now Paul is not a poet. You don't find that Paul writes poetry. But he's a man that was a logician. A man that was a great debater. This was the gift that God has given to him. And that is why when he's writing his writings, he's always using logic and he's always using debate and inferences that come from the passage of scripture. Um, you remember when you go into the book of Acts? In the book of Acts, you see this characteristic of the apostle Paul, this, this, this logistic, uh, logical way of Paul arguing, this, this debating strategy that Paul had, uh, this gift. You find that he goes into the synagogue and the Bible says that when he gets into the synagogue, he reasons with them out of the scripture, proving and alleging that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. You find that this is his gift that God has given to him, and now he's using it. I would like to suggest to you that, like the Apostle Paul, we as Christians have got to be able to live not on our feelings, but on the basis of logic and reason. We've got to go to scripture and let the scripture deduct from the scripture things that would enable us to be assured of where we're standing before God. I've said this before, you know, if you've got diabetes, your feelings fluctuate. If you've got hypertension, your feelings fluctuate. You can't live that way. You need, like the Apostle Paul, to go to the Bible and begin to reason out of the Bible because the enemy will use that condition to create doubt and fears in your mind and uncertainty. And the Apostle Paul doesn't want us uh, to be this way. So the Apostle Paul is saying much more. This is something that naturally follows. This is something that should be obvious. This is a logical necessity that follows from what I'm telling you. There should be no if or buts about what I'm saying. Uh, the truth that I'm saying to you is axiomatic. It's something you can derive from what I've said to you in this passage of scripture. Now, the argument that Paul now uses with much more is the argument where Paul is reasoning from the greater to the lesser. What Paul's point is this, if God has done this greater thing for you, it's inconceivable that he will not do the lesser thing for you. This is the argument that Paul uses. By the way, you remember in Matthew chapter 6, our Lord uses the same argument of arguing from the greater to the lesser. In Matthew, when he's talking about worrying, his argument is if he, if he takes care of the animals and the birds and the lilies, he's going to take care of you. That's the argument. And Paul is now going to use this argument to show you that if God has done the greater thing for you, He's going to do the lesser. And by the way, may I ask you a question? Which is greater? Which is easier as well? Is it, is it not easier to just pour wrath on you? That's, easy. That's the natural thing that God, because he's holy. 
Is it not a greater thing that instead of pouring out wrath on you that God should work to bring about your salvation, a holy God, and yet justify you? So if he's done the greater thing, he's going to do the lesser. You don't have to fear about his protection of you as a believer. So let's see how Paul works this out uh, in this passage. He's already spoke about the love of God. He's already remembered the believers that God's love was so great that he sent his son to die for the believer. And he offers pardon and forgiveness. But then he imagines somebody thinking that, you know, raising a question. Okay, Paul, I understand what you're saying. You talk about God loved me and God redeemed me and Christ died for me. But that was a moment in time. And somebody now raised him, how can I now be sure, Paul, because I might live 50 years, I might live 70 years. How can I be sure that this salvation that I experienced at this point in time, this moment, how can I be guaranteed that through my life with all my weaknesses and all my foibles and all my idiosyncrasies, how can I guarantee that I will arrive finally at my destination? I don't question that I was saved at this point in time. But what guarantee that this salvation that I experience today would last until I finally face the maker and I'm eternally secure. This is how Paul is thinking. He's trying to respond to the person who thinks that way. I think when we were studying chapter 2 and 3, the apostle Paul in his mind conjectured what the Jews were thinking and they responded to them according to how he thought they were thinking. He's actually projecting his mind into his mind how people were thinking. And I think in this case, he's beginning to respond to a question that he himself had created in his mind thinking about the situation. So the apostle Paul is now going to deal with this question. How can we not have these fears and forebodings and these doubts about our final uh, security in Christ? And, and clearly this is the question that he has about the future. You notice that in verse number 9 he says, Much more being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from what? The wrath through him. So Paul is now addressing the whole question of divine wrath in the future. And whether or not the saved person will escape that wrath. This is what Paul is arguing here in this passage. In, in chapter 2 and verse number 5, the Apostle Paul already refers to the fact that there is wrath to come. Look at chapter 2 and verse number 5. He said, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteousness, righteous judgment of God. And then in chapter number 1, he talked about the wrath of God being revealed again on righteousness and ungodliness. So the term that Paul uses here has to do with the future. And it has to do with the divine wrath that the Bible says is going to come. He that believeth not, the wrath of God abideth on him, the Bible says. And what it, the idea is, is that everywhere a man goes who is outside of Jesus Christ, the divine wrath hangs from a spider's string, as it were, against the head. By the way, that's the same imagery that Jonathan Edwards used in Sinners of a Angry, uh, Angry God. The idea that divine wrath was suspended like a, a spider's web waiting to break down upon the sinner. And this is what Paul is here trying to respond to the person who says, I'm saved now, but what guarantee is there that the divine wrath that is going to come, I will not suffer that wrath of God. And Paul is now responding to this. You remember also that John the Baptist um, 
when he was speaking to his generation, what was John's message to generation? Uh, it was not a message of compassion and love. It was flee the wrath to come. That was John's message. He told the people to repent, flee the wrath to come. So there is a wrath to come. And the Apostle Paul wants to assure the believer who has put his faith and trust in Christ at this moment that when that wrath comes in that final phase, he will escape that wrath because he's eternally secure in Christ Jesus. So uh, Paul now tells us in verse number 9 of this chapter of Romans chapter 5, much more being justified uh, being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. But pastor, I'm already saved. So why does Paul use the term that I should be saved from the wrath through him? I've already said, well, that's because when you go into the Bible, there are three senses in which the word saved is used in scripture. There's a, a, a sense in which you are saved now. That's present. And what that really means is that you're saved from sin and the guilt of sin. But that's only one aspect of salvation. That has to do with your present. You are no longer under condemnation. Your sins have been pardoned. You've been forgiven. You no longer have to bear the guilt of your sins. Christ has taken that for you. So you're saved. But it's also a sense in which you are being saved. And the reason why the Bible talks about you being saved is because it has to do with the pollution of sin and the power of sin in your life. So even though you've been saved from the guilt of sin and the condemnation of sin, the fact is that when Adam fell, we inherited a sinful nature that was never eradicated at conversion. So even though our guilt has been dealt with, the fact is that we're still polluted in our nature and we're still under the power of sin. So that is why the Holy Spirit is given to you now to sanctify you, to make you holy. His job is to work on that pollution in you, that power of sin in your life, to break that power so that you can have a successful Christian life. So while it is a fact that you are saved already from the guilt and the condemnation of sin, it's also a fact that you are being saved progressively through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because every one of us know that there are what is called besetting sins. There are weights that we have in our Christian lives. I don't know what your weight is. I don't know what your besetting sin is. But I know one thing. You've got a weight and you've got a besetting sin. And you need victory over that. And God didn't save you from all of those things the moment you got saved. The Holy Spirit is needed now to work in your life to bring you to greater perfection in Christ. And that is what the Bible talks being saved. But in the third sense... In which the Bible uses the word save. And that has to do that the day is coming when we will be, our very bodies will be redeemed. And we will be in the presence of the Lord. And that sinful nature that's in us, that power of sin will no longer play on us because we shall be like him. That's the future for the believer as far as uh, the the Christian is concerned. That is why in Romans chapter 8. The Bible says that the, word, the, the creation groans and we groan as ourselves to, to wit that our body might be redeemed finally and uh, have this transformation and change so that it's not dominated by this pollution that we have and this power of sin that seems to co- want to control our lives. So what the Apostle Paul is pointing out here uh, in this passage is that there's a final aspect to the believer's salvation that is yet future. I remember some years ago, 
you probably heard of World Tomorrow program, Herbert W. Armstrong. That was a big, a big movement in the Caribbean when I was being up as a boy. I used to listen to that program almost every Saturday on Radio Fusion when they had the, uh, you people, would, I was a dinosaur, so you wouldn't know that, but they used to have, they put radios in everybody's home. You could pay, I think I could, I think it was five cents or five dollars or ten dollars a month when you put Radio Fusion. We had that, and I would always listen to the World Tomorrow program, Herbert W. Armstrong. And, uh, you know, uh, he would say that nobody is saved. Nobody is saved until the final day. And the reason why he made that statement and created such confusion because he never understood the three stages of salvation. He didn't understand the past tense in which we are saved from our guilt and condemnation. The present in which we are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And finally, where we will be delivered eternally and our bodies will be changed. He just latched on to one verse of scripture. Where it talks about us being saved. And he says, you see what? We're being saved. We're not saved yet. But he missed the whole thing about what the Bible teaches on this matter. And that's the danger, by the way, of cults. Of coming to one verse of scripture and building a whole body of doctrine around that verse of scripture. And ignoring the general channel of scripture. Uh, you've got to study scripture and put it in its context. Understand what's the general tenor that the Bible teaches on these matters. Uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse number 23. Just look there for just a moment. He said, And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to the wit. What? The redemption of the body. See, That's what we are ultimately waiting for, that this body that has been Saved will finally be redeemed and made like unto the glorious body of Christ so that the inherent sinful polluted nature and the power of that sin in our lives that we fight so much against every single day almost that is finally delivered, finally eradicated because we are transformed like unto him. So, so the Apostle Paul is talking here clearly about that final phase and he wants the believer to understand that he doesn't have to fear wrath in that final phase. And the reason why he doesn't have to fear wrath in that final phase is because what God has already done for him. And if God has done the greater thing for him, the lesser thing, clearly God will also do for him in, in that regard. So Paul's answer uh, in this particular passage, much more, he says that for the believer... We have already been justified. Notice what he says in verse, go back to verse number 5. Verse number 9. He said, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath to come. So Paul's argument this, or Paul's answer this. The reason why I can be absolutely sure I will not face divine wrath in the future is because I have been justified by God already. That is Paul's argument. And Paul is saying to us that we can be certainly sure that we'll escape divine wrath because God has already justified us. Now let me be very clear uh, this evening uh, why this is so and why the doctrine of justification is so important for the believer to grasp and to understand. When we talk about a person being justified before God, we're not just talking about God just pardoning a person. It is more than pardon. When a person is justified, he's pardoned, he's forgiven. But it's more than that. When a person is justified, it is that God as the moral judge of the universe 
not only pardons you and forgives you, but he declares you righteous before God. That is justification. And the reason why he can declare you righteous before God is because after he has forgiven your sin, he takes the righteousness of Christ and he places that righteousness on you. He imputes it to your account. And when God deals with you, he doesn't deal with you on the basis that you are a bankrupt sinner before God. He looks into your account and guess what he sees? The full righteousness of Christ. So you are fully justified before God. Now if you don't understand that, you can never ever feel that you're eternally secure. I don't care what you believe. If you never understand justification, you can never have the assurance of salvation. And that's why the Apostle Paul is saying much more. Being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath. Because if you're justified, all wrath is gone. That's his point. You are as righteous as Christ is righteous in God's sight. See? Listen, that is a phenomenal thought to entertain. If it were not in the scriptures, you could not ever conceive of that. See? And that's why you don't depend on how much works you can do and how good you can live to be justified before God and that you'll be okay. You depend on the fact that you're trusting Christ and Christ alone. See? By the way, that's why when Martin Luther got hold of this truth, he turned the world upside down. He could not believe this because every time he was in the Catholic Church, he was depending on sacrament, penances, or regular confession. He was depending on candles and, and, um, and, and sprinkling, baptism. He was dependent on works and, and all these type of things. That's what he was. And then when he finally understood what justification was, he turned the world upside down. You call it the Protestant Reformation. I call it the Protestant Revolution. Because the world has never been the same after Martin Luther got hold of this truth. It transformed the world. And when you fully grasp what Christ has done and what God has done through Christ for you and you're justified then there's no need for you to bite your nails uh, at nights wondering if I lie down tonight and I die, where am I going to go? Am I going to face the wrath of God? You're at peace with God because you're depending solely and completely on what Christ has done for you. By the way, many years ago, I heard of a pastor who had served in a church for many, many years, a good man. And he was dying. And in his moment of dying, he was going through a period of doubt. And in his mind, he was thinking and saying to God, well, look how much I've done for you. I've served you for so many years. I've done this in the church. And, so on. and then he realized that he got no peace out of that. All he could list before God. He came and he said, even your righteousness, not of works. Not of works. And the only thing that brought him peace after all those years of ministry is not what he had done for God and how much he had done for God because it has no merit before God. It is when he realized, finally, I must solely depend on Christ and Christ alone. And when he did, that's when he got peace. And the Apostle Paul is saying to us in this particular passage, you will escape wrath much more because God has already justified you in his sight. He declared the righteous, clothed you in his son, put you in his son, and he has justified. Now I want to Point out to you that it's interesting how the Apostle Paul changes his expressions in respect to justification. 
If you look at chapter 3 for just a moment and verse 24, notice what he says. He said, being justified freely by what? His what? So we're justified by his grace. Now look at verse 28 and see what he says. Therefore we conclude that the man is justified by what? Faith. So wait a minute, Paul. I'm justified by grace. I'm justified by faith. Now look at verse number 9 of, of chapter 5. Much more than being justified by what? The blood. So is there a contradiction here? A man in one case is justified by grace. In the next case is justified by faith. In the next case is justified by the blood. What, what, what's the solution to the problem? Well, what the Apostle Paul is teaching is, is, is uh, and this is an interesting variation of the terms. If you don't understand this, you can also end up in confusion. But this is what Paul is teaching in those different verses. Number one, when he says that we are justified by grace, it means that grace is a source from which God reaches down to us to justify us. That's the source. It starts with God. It was in the mind of God and God took the initiative. So it's all of grace. That's what the Apostle Paul... So when he says of grace, it means that it is not something meritorious. It's a gratuitous gift of God that God extends to us. God saw us in our condition and nothing moved God other than His grace to save us. Nothing else. That's why the Apostle Paul points out in Romans chapter... There was nothing in us to attract God to us. Everything about us would have called God to be repulsed from us. But out of His grace and His mercy, He reached down to us. So that's why when we get to heaven, we will not be praising ourselves how good we were. We're praising how God's grace was so much extended to us. See? All glory will go to him. So when he talks about being uh, justified by grace, it has to do with his source. But when he said that we are justified by faith, that's the channel through which this grace comes. See? What our faith does is that when God presents the gift of eternal life to us, we take the gift or we reject the gift. But we don't work for the gift. You can't work for a gift. It's a gratuitous given to you. And all God asks you to do is exercise faith and trust in Christ. That's the channel to which justification comes. But when he said we're justified by his blood, that's the grounds of our justification. In other words, it is Jesus Christ's death on the cross that allows God to forgive us and give us the righteousness that we deserve. So there's no contradiction, there's a blending. It all depends on the aspect from which Paul is looking. And the Apostle Paul, in this particular passage, is reminding the believer that he is justified by the blood of God's Son. And Paul's argument seems to be this. If God allowed his Son to die and poured out the blood of his Son to justify you, if he did that for you, when you were in the condition you were in before, when you were an enemy, when you were a sinner, when you were ungodly, when you had no power and no strength, if God allowed his son to die for you then, the apostle Paul said you can be guaranteed that you will escape the wrath to come through the same Christ that died for you. And that's why I asked you the question at the beginning, which is easier. If God did the most difficult thing in justifying you, he worked out a plan to save you, 
would he now not be able to, the easier thing for God to pour his wrath. That's the lesser thing. The greater thing was to redeem you. So if he'd done the greater for you, Paul is saying, you'll escape the lesser. See? This is what Paul's argument is. That's why he said much more. Much more as a person comes to faith and trust in Christ, they will escape this wrath because they've already been justified before God. It's a greater work on the behalf of God in behalf of ourselves. I want to point out that the Apostle Paul points this out to us in Thessalonians chapter 1 as well. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 and 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9. He said, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and the living God. And get this part. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus Christ, which do what? Delivereth us what? The wrath to come. See? Same thing Paul is saying. We shall be saved from the wrath through him. The one that redeemed us and justified us will save us from the wrath to come. But did he know our Lord taught the same thing himself? Look at John chapter 5 for just a moment in verse 24. John chapter 5 and verse 24. Listen to what our Lord says. Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, he that heareth my words and believeth on him that sent me, hath what? Everlasting life and shall not come into what? Condemnation, but is passed from what? Death to life. In other words, the person who was saved is already passed from death to life. So if he's already passed from death to life, there is no condemnation for the believer. There's no wrath for the believer. He's justified before God by putting his faith and trust in Christ. And God said he will not come into condemnation. One of the passages of scripture that I think is especially helpful in this area is look at Romans chapter 9 and verse 33 and verse 34. He asked a question. He said, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? And then he answered the question. It is God that justifies. So his argument is this. If God justifies, who can bring a charge against the person God has justified? Because God is the ultimate judge that justifies you. So there can be no charge. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Notice what he said in verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God the Father, who also maketh intercession for us. Do you get the full meaning of that? Do you get the weight of that? Who is he that condemneth? Who can condemn the person that Christ died for and that Christ lived for? Can't happen. The point that the Apostle Paul stresses, the point that our Lord stresses, and the point that Paul gives in, the, in Thessalonians chapter is the same thing Paul is teaching here. Much more now that we're justified before God, we will not face the consequence of God's wrath. The same God that justified us through Jesus Christ, it is through the same Christ that we will be saved from the wrath of God. And this is what the Apostle Paul 
is trying to get across to these believers. And he wants us to understand the glorious, momentous truth of justification by faith. And once we get hold of what that really means, the Apostle Paul is absolutely sure that we will have this assurance that we don't have to face the wrath to come, that we are fully, completely delivered in Christ, and we are eternally saved in Him. I mentioned uh, a moment ago that uh, if you were to read how Martin Luther struggled to find peace with God, it's an amazing story. Of course, he was a brilliant scholar. I think you know that. Uh, and you remember that uh, Martin Luther went in to become a monk because he felt that being away from the world, he could go into the monastery, he had to know God better, to get to know God. He went through all the rituals that endured, all the fasting and feasting. But even in the monk, being in a, a monastery, he didn't have peace. You remember that Martin Luther thought that, you know, God, I want peace. He went out in the rain and stood up in the rain in the thunderstorm and said, God, strike me down. Do whatever you want to do. Still no peace. And then he flagellated himself. He got a whip and whipped himself until blood poured into the fallen in pools of blood. But still no peace. But only when he came to the book of Romans, the Joshua lived by faith. That cloud that so suppressed him was lifted. And in a moment, it's like a flash of lightning. He understood for the first time there was nothing he can do but put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And being justified by putting his faith and trust in Christ, he now has peace with God. And the whole world has never been the same since then. It is not penance, it's not confession to the priests, it's not Eucharistic grace that he had, it's not the holy water, it's not the baptism, it's not the purgatory, it was not the lighted candles that he went, not even praying and prayer vigils, not even extreme unction. None of those things could ever bring the peace in a person's life. Only understanding that before God being justified, if God has justified you, you will have no wrath to face. And if much more, see, this is what the Apostle Paul says. Now this is Paul's argument. And there's another argument he uses to guarantee the believer his absolute security. See? He just piled another one here to tell you that you can be absolutely sure because there's no wrath for you in the future. And if there's no wrath for you in the future, you're eternally secure in Christ. So we're going to stop here tonight and we'll pick up the next one because Paul, he didn't finish with that. You would think, well, Paul, you've already told us that. Yeah, it's like, I don't think you fully understand what Paul wanted to establish. Paul understood your mind and my mind. We go through these periods of doubt. One day we feel we're tremendously saved. We want to turn the whole world aside. Hey, I'm saved! Next thing something happened, you made a failure and you dumped it to dump. Am I really saved? But you could never, never have the joy of being a Christian until you get this thing settled once and for all. See? And don't let your feelings dictate the level of your spirituality and the buoyancy of your spirit. See? Let the truth of God be the source that you depend on. And when those doubts come, go back to scripture, go through this passage of scripture and list what Paul has said. These are the things that God has done for me. This is the guarantee. I can't live on my feelings. 
My faith can only live on what the scripture says. And that's where we go back to these kind of passages of scripture. So the Apostle Paul is not even finished with this subject. He's going to pile another one on us next week in verse number 10. When he says, much more. And he thought being reconciled to God. He goes on to talk that we'll be saved through his life. There's another argument that Paul is going to use in verse number 10. But tonight... He's just simply building on what he has said. He's saying to the believer, get hold of what this doctrine of justification is. And if this is really, really happening in your life, everything is taking. The problem is this. The problem is, am I truly justified? That's your problem. See, you ha- This is the thing that you have to settle. Don't worry about this other one down here. This is where you settle that thing down there, is getting this whole subject of justification fixed in your mind. And what I would ask you this evening, has the Holy Spirit convicted you of your sins? Was there a time in your life when the Holy Spirit showed you that you were lost and undone? And did you have any brokenness about it? Did it move you to be willing to repent of your sins? And then having come to that stage, did the Holy Spirit show you that Jesus Christ is the only answer? And then you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If that happened in your life, that's how you became justified. But if you can say to me this evening, Pastor, I had no conviction about sin. I never repented of my sin. I never exercised faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You're lost. You're lost as the worst heathen on planet earth. So that is, this is the question you need to settle. And once this is settled, there are certain deductions to derive from this that give you great certainty with your standing before God. I don't know about you guys, right? But every time I open the paper and read something on the news, somebody just died. Uh, some, some movie star, some NFL player or something. And every time it's like God flashing a light saying, but wait a minute. And, and, and the older you get, you begin to realize that how tenuous your life is. You young people don't even think about that. But believe me, every time I'm reading something in the, in the news, and if I follow Fox News on the, on the, I don't get it here, I follow it on the, on the, on the uh, thing as much as possible. And they always got this person died, that person died, and that. And I said, what are you, what are you telling me about him? I ain't care nothing about him. And the people, by the way, that they, 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 they are big up, that die are people who have no significance. They haven't changed the world. They've done nothing to change the world. They've made tons of dollars, but they haven't made one impact on society. Why they big up all these things? But I'm impressed again and again by the brevity and the shortness of life. And I'm saying to you, you need certainty. And only certainty is found in one person, one place, and that's in Christ and Christ alone. Do you know him? Do you have him? Are you trusting him? Are you saved? Are you redeemed? Are you a justified believer here tonight? If you are, I'm saying to you, you are eternally secure and there's no wrath for you. God exhausted the wrath on his son on your behalf. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the tedious way in which the apostle Paul has been building a case using argument after argument. It seemed to be so important for him that we have certainty about where we stand before you. He understood perhaps more than we did the great uncertainty of life. Everywhere he went on the mission strip, everywhere he traveled, he was in danger of brigands and beggars and people who could attack him. 
he had enemies without enemies within. There was no certainty about Apostle Paul's life, whether imprisonment or death. And he became very conscious that life was so brief and so short. And no wonder the Apostle Paul is emphasizing again and again in this passage. He's dealt with the great salvation that we have in chapters 3 and 4. But then he spends so much time on this matter of our security. Because he knows one thing. In a world where it is insecure, we need some guarantees. And Paul is building a case that the believer may have this guarantee. That they have an eternal standing before God. Oh Lord, flood our hearts with your word. Give us the same kind of rational thinking the Apostle Paul. Help us to think sensibly. Let the Holy Spirit allow us to draw deductions from what has happened and taken place for us. Above all, help us to fully grasp the teaching of justification by faith. The most glorious doctrine in the scriptures. So that we may begin to enjoy our Christian life. And whether today is good or today is bad. Or whether we face one problem after another. That we can have the blessed assurance that we are at peace with God and it be right whenever God calls us. We have no fear. We don't have to be living in doubt. We can have certainty. This is what we need above everything is in our lives. And I pray, Lord, you grant through your favor and through your grace that the teachings the Apostle Paul gives us in this chapter will become that part of the Bible that we go back to when the enemy assaults us and assaults our faith and create doubts. May we find the teachings of this great chapter to be the means of dispelling doubt and giving us certitude and certainty in our own Christian faith. How we thank you for Paul's teaching. And I thank you, Lord, that you've given us a better understanding of the implication of those teachings not just for the church that he wrote to, but also for our church, for our age, for our time, for our people, for ourselves, individually and collectively. Bless your word. Continue to use your word to strengthen your people, fortify your people, encourage your people, build them up in the faith, give them the greatest confidence that they need so that they live a buoyant spirit and present to the world a picture of certainty and assurance. And Lord, we become a good witness and a good advertising agency for you to attract people to the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Bless us as we leave. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us that the believer is eternally secure because he is reconciled in Christ. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268 462 4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.